Amen. Our first scripture reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. I invite you to hear this word with me. First, I'm going to read chapter 2, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. The word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our next reading is from Romans chapter 7. We'll pick up in verse 12. Romans 7, verse 12 through 25. Hear this word. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. Did what is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin working death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. But in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I am a slave to the law of God, but with the flesh, I am a slave to the law of sin. Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, you have promised good to us. Your word, our hope, secures So we pray that your goodness and your grace would be made known to us today in the midst of our vulnerability, in the midst of our frailty, in the midst of our sin and our shame, in the midst of our weakness and brokenness. We pray that we would know and trust that your goodness is sufficient for us in this life and in the life to come so that when our flesh and heart fail us, we know that we are prepared to abide with you now and always. 
This we pray in the powerful name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has risen from the dead. Let the church say, Amen. Sometimes the loudest voice that you can hear is the one in your own head. Or maybe it's deeper than that. Maybe it springs forth somewhere from inside your heart or your soul. Most of you know the voice I'm talking about. Not everybody has an internal critic, I have learned, but I myself do. It says things like, why would you say that? How could you be so dumb? Why are you always so awkward? Anybody else feel those things regularly in conversation? You know that you shouldn't have come here. You don't belong with these people. It affects everything. That internal critic affects the way that we see ourselves in the mirror and in pictures, the way that we think of our own worth and value, the way that we evaluate and criticize the decisions that we make. And sometimes that criticism of ourselves, we turn on others too, and it separates us from them because we can't see their value because we've been so critical of our own. It drives us to fear. It drives us to insecurity. It it nullifies our sense of worth. It makes us get stuck in indecision. Well, if I do this, it's going to be terrible for that reason. If I do that, it'll be terrible for another reason. And then when we get critical of our indecision, it pushes us into something rash. Y'all know this, right? Y'all have experienced this. And it's always lingering there ready to tell us that we're not enough, that we don't belong, that we should be ashamed, that we don't measure up, that our sin is worse than everyone else's, that we will never be really loved, that we will never be at peace, that we will never know joy. Or maybe it's not never for those things. Maybe it's just a perpetual lie that it's not yet. Maybe it's you'll be enough when you finally get the promotion when you finally get the raise and make enough money for you to know that you're really valuable. Maybe it'll be enough when you're valedictorian or when you prove that you're the best in whatever it is that you're good at. Maybe you'll have peace or you'll be lovable if you can just find the right spouse. Maybe it's not even that attached to you, that you can finally be happy if your team would just once win a championship. Whatever it is, For some of us, that voice is the loudest voice in our lives. And you and I both know that it is not the voice of God. It's not the voice of God because it's a liar. It's not the voice of God because it contradicts the very things that the Word of God teaches us. The Word of God that is so powerful, it can bring the world and our existence and lives into being. And listening to another voice is what got us here in the first place. We've talked about this for a couple of weeks now, how Adam and Eve were created by the Word of God. The whole world was created by the Word of God. And they began to listen to another voice. They acted according to another voice. And today, we're going to look a little bit more closely at what compelled Eve to do it. It was the voice, but then she started looking at the fruit. She said, if I eat that fruit, I'm going to have wisdom. Somehow, because she'd started listening to the voice of the serpent, though she had been made in the image of God, she felt insufficient. So she needed something else. She needed wisdom. 
and something that tasted good. It was good for eating, and it was going to make her wise. So maybe that would make her enough. Maybe if she listened to the serpent, she could be like God in a way that she wouldn't need God anymore. That voice is talking to some of you saying, you are a fool to come, you're going to get sick today. And for some who stayed home, they're thinking, well, I'm a fool. I should have just gone to worship. It's not that big a deal. And preachers, let me tell you, we have been going through the same thing this week. What should we cancel? What should we keep moving forward with? What is essential to the life of the church and what's not? How should my response be different from the large church in Jackson or the small church up the road? Why? What justifies all of these decisions? Is there ever a time when medical professionals and government officials should have the authority to tell the church when they gather for worship? Should the church bow down to other authorities? But what about love? What does it mean to love our neighbors by making changes to avoid contributing to overloading the medical system? Is refusing to meet letting fear override our faith? Is choosing to meet testing the Lord like Jesus being tempted to jump off the temple so that God would save him? If the early church worshipped under threat of execution and torture, should a really bad cold be enough to keep us from getting together? In what ways can digital communication cover the gap if we're not supposed to get together in body? And for how long does that work? Given a choice between caring for people's bodies and caring for their souls, how are we supposed to choose? And on and on it goes, each question louder than the last, each answer insufficient because of the way that critic comes in and speaks more loudly than the voice of God. Which God would just tell me what we're supposed to do, that'd be a lot easier. And Paul says it so clearly. I don't do the things that I want, even when I know what is right, I don't do it. With my mind, I'm serving the law of God. I want to do the right thing. And with my flesh, I'm serving the law of sin. I'm weak. I can't do the things that I want to do. The things that I hate, I do them myself. And I am at war within myself. Who can rescue me from this body of death, Paul says. And that's what sin does to us within ourselves. It puts us in opposition to the created order as we talked about last week, making us vulnerable to death where diseases and death loom always around the corner. And it puts us in opposition to ourselves inside of ourselves where we no longer know who we are or what we should do. Where our lives are characterized by shame and inadequacy And our failed attempts to rid ourselves of those things only make matters worse and sometimes drive us deeper into sin. This is why so many famous and otherwise successful people struggle with addiction and depression. They've been driven to prove themselves, to prove that they are worthy, to prove that they can attain excellence, to prove that they are enough. And every step of the way that seems like it could satisfy them proves to be not what they had hoped it would be. And so they get driven to other things that can soothe their pain 
or they simply decide to quit altogether. They get led into despair. So we do it. We cover ourselves up with fashionable clothes. We make up our faces so that they're pretty. We make sure our hair is cut just so. We cover up with wealth and resources. We cover up with fake confidence, a thin veneer that we hope no one sees through. We cover up with theological answers that sound right but ring hollow when we offer them. Whatever it is that we choose to cover ourselves up with, we think maybe if we cover up well enough, we'll convince others and maybe even ourselves that we've got it all together. That maybe we're not such a shameful mess inside. One thing that really stands out to me about this text from Genesis 3 is that Adam and and Eve's shame comes even before the curse. It comes before they see God at all after they've sinned. It is the immediate effect of their sin that they look at themselves, they look at one another, they feel shame and immediately have to start struggling to cover themselves. And their efforts are laughable. They've known what each other looks like the whole time. Some fig leaves aren't going to change that for one another. God hasn't come yet, but do they really think that the creator of the universe is going to be kept from seeing who they are by some fig leaves? When God comes to them, he asks, who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you were naked? Who made you ashamed of the image that I wrote onto your very character? Whose voice is stronger in your life than my voice? Who told you you were naked? And if we look back, the serpent never says that. The serpent never tells them that they're naked. That emerges from some deep sense of unworthiness that has come from their sin. They feel ashamed of what they have done and of who they are, and they think if they just knit some fig leaves together, that'll solve the problem. So I wonder for you, what are your feeble attempts to cover yourself up before other people and before the God who knows everything about you? What is it that prevents you from standing naked before the Lord, able to hear, you are my beloved child. With you, I am well Because we can see it in Adam and Eve, and we can see it in others, and we can see it in ourselves. But what will save us from this body of death? What will save us from the way that sin tears at the fabric of our souls and leaves us at war with ourselves and scrambling to find external solutions for internal problems? How can we escape this body of death? When Jesus talks to the Pharisees, He calls them whitewashed tombs. He calls them that because they're sinners like everybody else, but they walk around looking perfect. Like they follow the law perfectly. They're dressed just like they're supposed to. They follow all of the rules. They look perfectly clean and pure, and they are dead on the inside. They have mastered what Adam and Eve started by knitting together fig leaves. The Pharisees are the best at it at covering up their sin with a thin veneer of confidence and righteousness 
and law-abiding citizens so that everyone else can know that they are valuable and not ashamed when they're just like the rest of us. Our sin does not only affect other people. We're going to talk next week about how it does affect other people. But this week, we need to reckon with how sin tears at our own souls. Sin convinces us that we are unlovable, that we do not deserve God's love. And the dangerous part of of the voice inside is that sometimes it's right. Sometimes it's true that we are unlovable, that we are unworthy, that we don't deserve it. And yet, even though we can't earn it, even though we don't deserve it, God offers grace to Adam and Eve. We didn't read this part of the passage as we were reading today, but it's there, and it's really important. In 321, after God has told them the effects of their sin, how they're going to be separated from one another, how creation is going to work back against them, how life is going to be terribly difficult because of their sin, the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and for his wife and clothed them. The Lord made garments of skins for the man and for his wife and clothed them. God looked at these two who had abandoned him by their sin, who had said that God is not enough. We need to be more. We need to be like God. They had disobeyed the word that created them. And God offers them a description of what's going to happen. And then he makes them clothes. And they're better clothes than they could make themselves. They tried fig leaves, but God takes animal skins. God makes them fur coats to cover up their shame and to protect them from the elements. God's heart is broken. He knows that his world is not going to be the same without tremendous effort. And yet he makes them clothes. And God gives us a hint here, both of how sin makes us vulnerable and leaves us in need of clothes, both to cover our shame and to keep us protected from the sun that will bear down on us and the insects that will bite us and everything else. But God makes them clothes out of animal skins, which means that God has to kill one of his good creations to give Adam and Eve their fur coat. Because the world they're about to enter is going to be harsh and their skin is not going to be enough to keep them warm and safe or to cover the deep emptiness in their souls. So right away, God shows his grace and his provision. And he does it at cost to the world that he has made. As he does that, he shows us a glimpse of the links that he will go to to take away our shame and to protect us and to give us life that lasts, to cover us up and keep us safe even when we've done this to ourselves. In Jesus, in Jesus, he offers the life of his own son so that we can be clothed in his righteousness, so that he can take away our shame, so that his voice, the very word of God, can rule in our lives and we can confess Jesus to be Lord and not ourselves or that voice that criticizes us so that we can be adorned in beautiful white garments like a bridegroom prepared for her bride, 
so that when anyone, God, ourselves, or others look at us, we know that we are showing forth the very glory and power of God as an evidence to God's grace in our lives. Over the next couple of weeks, I suspect we're going to have a lot of time to reflect. Time without some of our idols, Duke basketball. Time with canceled TV shows. Time without school. Maybe time without Sunday morning worship. We're going to have a lot of time. And that time, as our idols are stripped away, could lead us into places where we feel unworthy and ashamed and like we don't belong. It could be that our perpetual motion has covered up the deep wounds in our lives that we have not yet given to God. And it could be, it could be that this virus threatens the lives of us or people around us in ways that make us confront the power of sin and the shame in our lives in ways that we've been avoiding for a long time. And if that's the case, We can't settle for a cheap imitation or a cover-up any longer. There will be a day when each of us stand before the Lord naked. And the question is, will we be ashamed? Or will we be confident in the grace that Jesus has offered us to heal our sins, to give us peace inside, and to restore our relationship that has been broken by our sin? I hope... I hope that this time that you might have over the next couple of weeks will be a chance for you to find peace in the Word of God who has spoken so loudly in the love of His Son that it can overwhelm whatever critical voice exists in you and is tearing you apart. I hope that you can know the worth that God has placed on you, not that you have intrinsically because of the good that you have done, but because of the price he's been willing to pay to win you back, and that you will know the fullness of his grace and mercy healing your spirit. Don't settle for a cheap imitation. Don't go into despair because your idols have been stripped away. Simply lean in to the Lord who from the very beginning has been showing us his grace, who's been covering us and clothing us in the midst of our shame, And who in Jesus Christ forsook himself and took on our shame and all of the pain of our sin and has led us into new life. Trust in him. Trust only in him. Because you do not have to live in fear. You don't have to live in fear of the critic that lives in your head. You don't have to live in fear of the criticism of the people around you. You do not have to live in fear of the wrath of God. Because God has offered you grace. Are you ready to receive it? Are you ready to live as the child of God that he says that you can be by faith? Are you ready to silence the critic in your head by letting God do the work of rescuing you from this body of death. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, we need you. We desperately need you. Every hour, we need you. Because this cycle of sin that tears us apart is too much for us to heal ourselves. So we thank you that you were shamed 
on the cross in our place. We thank you that you offered your life so that we could have life full of abundance and peace and joy and love. And we pray, Lord, that in this Lenten season, in this season of social distancing and quarantine and fear, that you would set our eyes firmly on Jesus, that we could look full in his wonderful face, and that all the things of the world, those that glimmer and those that scare us, would grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and in the light of his grace. We pray that you would give us confidence that in Christ he has clothed us with glory, that our lives can be pleasing to you, And if we are acting in faith, taking one step at a time, that our lives are, in fact, pleasing to you. Pray all of this in your holy, precious, powerful, and grace-filled name, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our closing hymn today is going to be 